Well, our sermon text today is Psalm 51. So if you want to turn there, uh, that'll be our text this morning. It's also printed on your bulletin if you don't have a Bible there with you. And I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not Delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask him once again to teach us and to bless his word to us by his spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this psalm and all your scriptures. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit even now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. I don't know if any of you, or I'm sure some of you are sports fans. Uh, You know, there's always, you ever see the interviews, you know, after the games and things or before games, and very often athletes, um, some of whom are very bright, some maybe aren't, but um, they often speak in cliches. Maybe the pressure of the moment, you know, millions of people watching, you don't know what to say, and so they often, you know, there's a a handful of things they always say, you know, one game at a time, blah, 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 give 110%, and want to thank my teammates, and whatever else, and, you know, the things they say, whether they mean them or not. One of them, if you have a a, a particular team with a rivalry, you know, there's the old cliche about, you know, looking down the calendar at the schedule at a game that's like two weeks from now, you know, and not taking it one week at a time or one game at a time, you know, peeking ahead at who's coming up down the road. Um, well, I have to confess, in some ways, I, I couldn't help but do that with this psalm. Uh, what, last month, as I was getting ready to, uh, to preach on Psalm 50, I was very much aware, not just because of the numbers, but that Psalm 51 
was next. In Psalm 51, if you're familiar with the Psalms at all, uh, surely jumps off the page at you. As soon as I say the number, you might be, you know, maybe you were sitting there and you thought, oh, Psalm 51. You know, some of them you think, I have no idea which one that is, but Psalm 51 is not one of those. We think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, even Psalm 32, which is uh, supposed to have been written about the same instance that this one was written about. So David has at least two uh, penitential psalms in the scriptures about his uh, most infamous uh, wrongdoing and sin. Um, so the Psalm 51, if you if you have been reading the psalms for any length of time, probably uh, really gets you right where you live. I mean, th- this one is special to, to mo- most, if not all of us. Um, and why is that? You know, some psalms, you know, they're hard to identify with. You, you read them and the situation, the circumstance is so alien and foreign to us that we kind of, like we try, we have to try hard to appreciate what it says. Psalm 51 is not one of those psalms. Psalm 51, if, any, if you're self-conscious of your own shortcomings and sins at all, uh, Psalm 51 is, is a breath of fresh air uh, to you when, you when you read it, when you sing it, when you pray it. Uh, and that's because it's about forgiveness. You know, uh, very often we, um, we summarize or, or uh, boil down salvation, um, not improperly, but we, we sometimes speak of forgiveness in such a way that it, it's almost like it's, it's the only thing the gospel involves. Now, that's not a true statement, right? Salvation is more than forgiveness, but forgiveness is such a big part of our salvation that, I mean, you couldn't have salvation without it. And so it's not entirely wrong to, to kind of use forgiveness as a shorthand for all the benefits of the gospel. It's not, it's not all the benefits. I mean, God adopts us in Christ. Uh, he sanctifies you, as we're even going to see this morning, in Christ, as well as forgiving you and pardoning you and accepting you as righteous in his sight because of what Christ has done in our place. Um, but uh, in, in this psalm, it's one of those ones where, if you realize what it's about, what the historical situation behind it is, which we're going to look at at least briefly today, um, you don't have to be able to identify with David's most grievous sins that are the background of this psalm to still be grabbed by it. Uh, you know, many of us are, are comforted, I'm sure, uh, by, the, by the fact that someone such as David can commit such a wicked uh, group of sins, really, uh, and still be forgiven and be the man after God's, God's own heart. But all of us can identify with the, the need for mercy and forgiveness. Every day of our lives, you, you will never get past that until you're in heaven with the Lord. And so it's no, no big mystery why this psalm has held such a special place in the hearts of so many believers down through the centuries and even the millennia. It's been around for 3,000 years, basically, this psalm, more or less. Now, um, I, have, I have to admit, as I was looking down the calendar at this one coming up, I was excited about it when I first thought about it. Then the more I thought about it, the more intimidated I became by it. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those ones, uh, it's almost like I expected someone to pull me aside and say, hey, don't screw this one up. You know, it's like, you know, you screw up another one that nobody has, you know, on a, a poster on their wall or an artwork on their wall. Nobody says anything. But um, I was glad to find out uh, that, that I wasn't alone in that. Charles Spurgeon said this of Psalm 51. Uh, I'll, I'll condense the quote a little bit. He says, I postponed expounding it week after week, uh, feeling more and more my inability for the work. Often I sat down to it and rose up again without having penned a line. Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhale, exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who, having attempted it, 
can do other than blush at his defeat. Now I felt even more intimidated, right? I mean, <laughs> Charles Spurgeon says, I, I tried, I sat down, I got back up. I sat back down, I got back up for weeks. He couldn't even write a line. Uh, so if Charles Spurgeon blushed at his defeat, I'm imagining my, my cheeks will be a shade of pink before this sermon is over. Uh, but may the Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy be pleased to work in us by his Holy Spirit even today that you and I, to use Spurgeon's words, might learn to weep over this psalm, absorb it into our souls and exhale it in devotion by prayer and praise and in pointing fellow sinners, as David says, to the great and merciful Savior by whose abundant mercy and grace we have the forgiveness of sins and is to be found for any who come to him. Uh, the first thing we want to look at is the historical background of this psalm. It, it helps us to know, you know, most of the psalms don't have any information. Sometimes they'll say things like, to the choir director, you know, a psalm of Asaph, and that's it. And we're, or it'll tell you what kind of instrument was supposed to be played for the psalm, and we've never heard of these instruments, so we kind of shrug our shoulders and move on to the actual body of the text. But this one's a little bit, a little bit different. This one, David gives us, the, uh, the uh, a hint, at least, of the historical background for what he writes of here. And it says there in that introduction above verse 1 in your Bible, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. And then it says, When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David's sin, his notable sin with Bathsheba, including those sins that accompanied it and, and aggravated it even more, uh, the death of the murder of, of Uriah, um, you know, that... That sin and God's subsequent sending of Nathan the prophet to David and his rebuke of David, uh, those things are recorded for us. We can't read them all this morning here uh, for the sermon, but Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12 is where you'll find that if you want to read that maybe this afternoon. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize briefly what's in those chapters, but they're, they're certainly worth your time to read when you're looking and thinking at this psalm. Now, chapter 11 is the story of David's descent, descent into sin, into wickedness. Chapter 12 is God's sending of his prophet to, to turn him back to him. Now, David's descent into the shocking sins of both adultery and murder uh, is what we find in chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 and 12, but especially 11, should settle for us uh, without any any possible question uh, whether or not believers are still capable of heinous sins. Another way of saying that is, are you and I capable of very heinous, wicked acts of sin and rebellion? And I hope everybody understands from, from David's story that yes, we are. Yes, you and I both are capable of the very things that David did. Even the most sanctified among us are capable of such things unless we think that we are greater than David. You know, the scripture talks about Jesus himself says, one greater than David is here. Well, who was that? It wasn't you and it wasn't me. It was him. We are not greater than David. We are not past uh, David's point of sanctification where we are no longer capable of such things. And so we should be careful. What does the scripture say? You know, take heed. Let he who thinks he stands, thinks he stands. Take heed lest he fall. That applies, Paul says, to us. We are to take heed lest we fall in that way as well. Well, in the, in the text in chapter 11 of Second Samuel, uh, he tells us it was springtime in verse 1 of that chapter. Uh, spring was in the air, and apparently, as he says, uh, it was the time, quote, when kings go out to battle. So spring in our day is for baseball, you know, spring training in David's area of the world. Uh, I guess when things thaw out, you're finally able to resume your battles in the wintertime. It's kind of hard to move your equipment and your men. 
and so what it says it was the time when kings go out to battle, but what did David do? Verse 1 there says that David instead sent Joab and the army and all the nation out to fight while he, quote, remained at Jerusalem. So Samuel is trying to give us a hint that this isn't the way it was supposed to be. David wasn't doing something he was supposed to do. Um, and what's the very next thing that we see in that text? It says that you know, it just so happened that David, quote, was walking on the roof of the king's house, the palace, uh, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and saw that the woman was very beautiful. So first David stayed uh, and then he saw. And the next thing he did was send. It says that he sent and inquired about the woman. Verse three, and he was told who she was, told her name, told her family background. And lastly, verse three says that he was told that she was, quote, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I mean, he was given details. He wanted details. He got details. And the details he got was that not only was she married, but she was married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, you might not know who Uriah was outside of this account, but Uriah was one of David's mighty men of valor. He wasn't just anybody. He wasn't just, you know, if you were going to compare it to a chessboard, Uriah wasn't the pawn. He may have looked like a pawn in this story. Uriah was one of the big pieces in the back row. He was one of David's mighty men of valor. He was... Uh, you know, up high. He was a well-known, well-respected, uh, godly fighting, fighting man. He was somebody who served David. He was one of David's crack troops. He wasn't just cannon fodder. He was one of the ones that would have fought alongside David in some ways. Now, did that stop him when he was told who it was, whose wife this was? Did it stop him? No, obviously it didn't. He sent for her, took her, lay with her, verse 4, and she became pregnant, verse 5. Now, <clears throat> the pregnancy, that's the, the monkey wrench in the works, isn't it? it? Now, his sin was kind of public. I mean, he didn't sneak out and go get her himself. He sent for her as the king. So someone knew what happened. Uh, but when she got pregnant, that, that meant that it was going to be pretty obvious for everyone to see in just a matter of time. And so what's the old saying about the cover-up always being worse than the crime? Well, that's the case in this case as well. David sent for Uriah, the husband, right? And what did he try to do? He brought him to the palace, basically got him all liquored up and sent him home, thinking, hey, you know, we'll cover it up this way. He'll go home, he'll, he'll stay with his wife, and then he'll think it's his baby, and we're all, we're all good. And she, you know, certainly she won't tell him, um, but that wasn't the case, was it? What's the irony here is Uriah is a godlier man in this case than David was. He slept on his front porch, he wouldn't go in. And he reasoned with himself that, you know, how can I go home and enjoy the comforts of home when my, my buddies are out in the field of battle, roughing it and, and risking their life and limb? And, you know, I'm not on a retreat here. I, I don't get a vacation during a time of war. David didn't have that problem, did he? David took a vacation in time of war. Uriah refused to do that. So what did, what's David supposed to do now? Uriah is not, not cooperating He's not helping him with the cover-up, which he didn't know he was supposed to help him with. So what he did was he put a, a plan in motion to expose Uriah in battle. I mean, think about, about what this really is. He, he's having Uriah killed and covering that up too. Hey, you know, he gets shot by arrows. He got too close to the wall of the place where they were fighting. But he actually sent orders by the hand of Uriah himself, a sealed letter uh, to, the, to the general, to Joab, to have this happen. So David's now involving other people in this, in this sin. 
Now, what happens? Uriah, you know, goes to the front where the fighting is fiercest. He actually goes, they had him go where he shouldn't have gone. You know, you don't go to a city with archers on top of the walls and expose yourself. Well, that's what he told them to do. And when it got bad, draw back and expose Uriah. And so Uriah was, was killed in battle, but it wasn't the person who shot the arrows or whatever it was that murdered Uriah. It was King, it was King David. <clears throat> so King David's uh, you know, use of this to have Uriah murdered. Uriah's death gave David the, the cover he needed in order to marry. You know, what's the saying? Till death do us part. Well, Uriah's dead now, so now David can marry her and all, it all looks good, right? That's part of the, the purpose of having him kill. Think about that, though. In, in order to try to avoid the appearance of adultery, David willingly committed murder. It's getting worse and it's getting worse. Still saying about the tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, it, it just got worse. And so the next thing we see in verse 26 of, of that chapter, Bathsheba was a godly woman. We are not to place blame on her when the king of the place sends for you. There's not much you can really do about it. It says she mourned for her husband. When the time for that mourning was over, David took her as his wife and she bore him a son. Verse 27. But the last verse of that chapter, chapter 11, says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Verse 27. You know, we almost want to say no duh. But I mean, all this stuff happens. And it's as if to put an exclamation point on it. It means God saw God wasn't fooled by the, you know, the way men were fooled. And it displeased him. God did not say, hey, David's my king. Boys will be boys. It displeased God. It's probably an understatement, but scripture is being kind here. It displeased the Lord. High-handed wickedness and iniquity is seen by the Lord, and it displeases him still, even if it's from one of his choicest saints, such as David. Now, the very next verse that we read, it's in chapter 12, verse 1. That very next verse should kind of shock us. You know, it, it should astound you. I know it doesn't. When you read it, it's like, oh, of course, this is what happened. I know the story. I know Nathan got sent. But verse 1 of chapter 12 should shock us because it doesn't say what it should say or at least what it could say, right? It says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. There's so much mercy in that verse, it's hard to even bring it all out. Nathan was the prophet of the Lord and the Lord sent a prophet. He could have sent fire from heaven instead. He could have dropped David on the spot for his wickedness, but he sent a prophet instead. Why? Because what does Psalm 103 says? It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you ever wanted proof of that in the Old Testament, there it is. He sent a prophet to David. He sent that prophet to rebuke David for his sin and his iniquity, to turn him back to the Lord in confession and repentance. I won't read the, the parable of sorts that he gave about the man with one little ewe lamb. And there was a rich guy that was traveling that had all kinds, you know, uh, his, his friend was traveling and he had all kinds of sheep, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. But he took the one man's little ewe lamb and, and killed it and fed that to his friend. And David got all angry and said, you know what, as surely as the Lord lives, this man, the one who did this must die. He's condemning himself. And, and what does Nathan say? You're the man. You're the guy I'm talking about. And then David, David confessed his sin. Now let that sink in for a moment. It's, it's a great mercy and kindness of God that he sends messengers. He still sends his messengers 
to rebuke us for our sins, whether it be in preaching or in private conversation, and to admonish us toward repentance. It doesn't always feel like it, does it? Nobody likes to be rebuked. I don't like to be rebuked. I don't like to be reproved. But what does Proverbs say? Proverbs 9.8 says, Reprove a wise man, and he will what? He will love you. He might not enjoy it, but he will love you if you reprove or rebuke him for his sin. Now, in David's case, you know there, there's chastisement, isn't there? That baby died, and David wasn't happy about it. He mourned, he prayed that it wouldn't happen. He sought the Lord, that baby died. There were a lot of other consequences. The sword, the sword never departed from his house after that, it says. Um, even though there was chastisement for his sin, he was told the greatest words a sinner like you and I could ever hope to hear. Verse 13 of chapter 12, Nathan tells him after he confessed, the Lord also has put away your sin. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. In other words, he he gave him, here's the consequences. This is what's going to happen. But the Lord has taken away, put away your, your sin. Now, you and I don't have to be able to identify with David's sin. You may be able to do just that. Uh, that's the background here to identify with his cry for mercy and forgiveness. But think about this. What a, what a comfort this should be to you and to me this morning to see that there was abundant mercy for sin such as that. For someone in a high position such as David was, was in as the king of, of Israel, there is abundant mercy, verse 1 of Psalm 51, for those who have committed even those kinds of sins when they turn back to the Lord in repentance And think about this, what a kindness of the Lord to use even the awful sins and iniquities of King David, the man after God's own heart, uh, which the scripture says twice, not just to warn us that all who fall into such sins, that we need to take heed lest we fall, but also to woo those who have found themselves in those situations, having fallen into wickedness and sin and shameful transgression like adultery and murder, that, that God, there's room, there's, there's mercy to be had. David stands as an example both of the ability to fall and God's willingness to forgive and reconcile and restore from David's sin. Now we'll look at the psalm itself. Uh, we're looking at the first nine verses to start. And this is David's confession of sin in the psalm and his plea for pardoning grace. Uh, he confesses his sin mostly in the first nine verses. But notice that David cried out for one thing. Mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, whereas grace is getting what you, the good that you don't deserve. How did, how, did God, how did David ask for forgiveness? On the basis of mercy, God's abundant mercy. He did not plead with God based on his position, you know, as the king. He didn't say, hey, God, you know, I'm pretty important. You know, let's not get carried away here. You know, what, everything, what you do to me is going to affect a lot of people. You know, if you make me look bad, you're going to make you look bad. None of that. That's what we would do. That's what our leaders would, would certainly do. He didn't plead his position. He didn't uh, use any of that as an excuse for his iniquity. You know, the, the, what he did in that, in that chapter, in chapter 11, it's what the kings of the world always have done. It's what earthly leaders in our day still do. And they, they wipe their hands of it and, like it's no big deal. You know... It's, it's boys will be boys, but it's on steroids. No, the kings, the big important people, they can't be bothered with God's laws, God's, God's commandments. No, what did David do? David cried out for mercy. He didn't think of himself as, well, I'm a king, I, you know, I'm special. 
He needed mercy for pardon and cleansing. And without mercy, the mercy of God, he had no hope for pardon and for cleansing. If not for the steadfast love and abundant mercy of God spoken of in verse 1, there would be no hope for forgiveness for David or for us. David Dixon, the old Puritan writer, says of this, he says, The consideration of the Lord's loving kindness and readiness to forgive the sinner that comes unto him should keep the sinner, how grievous soever his offense has been, from running away from him. Yea, should give him hope to meet with mercy, whatever may be his demerits. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. I mean, Dixon's saying, God's mercy, God's abundant mercy and loving kindness, in this, in this example of David here in Psalm 51, should keep even the worst sinner among us, no matter what we've done, no matter what you've done, should give you hope of mercy in coming to the Lord. Notice David also doesn't resort to euphemisms. That's what we like to do. We like to, to make things not sound as bad as they are. You know, I made a mistake. It's our favorite one. I'm sorry I offended, or I'm sorry you were offended at what I said. You know, the old non-apology, apology kind of thing. Um, he didn't rationalize it. That's what we also like, like to do. He didn't in any way minimize what he did. I mean, and really you can't. You know, you can fool people, but when you're talking to God, God knows more than you can possibly say as it is, right? Everything we've done and thought and said is an open book to God. And, and look at how he describes his sins in the first four verses alone. It's like he's struggling to find enough words to do it justice. He talks about his sins as, quote, transgressions in verse 1, iniquity and sin in verse 2, and then doing evil in the sight of the Lord, Lord in verse 4. It's like he's piling words one on top of the other. And, and none of them are, are, are good. None of them are, are flattering. None of them in any way lessen what he has done. And just as he piled up words on top of each other to confess his sins, he does the same thing when he starts begging for mercy to God. What does he say? What does he ask God to do? He asks God in verse 1 to blot out his transgressions. To blot them out. To you know, put white out over them or erase them, kind of thing. And to put you know a, a black marker over it, to blot out. Uh, he asks him to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity and to cleanse him. Verse two from his sin. Not only that, but he recognized that ultimately his sin was against whom. Now, did David sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and and Joab? Frankly. Involving Joab and Uriah. I mean, he's involving other people in murder. You kind of feel bad for Joab in this situation, too. Certainly he did. He, he sinned against all the above and the whole nation. I mean, as, you know, as Thomas Watson elsewhere says, you know, some men's sins are, he called them leading sins. In other words, when you're in charge and you sin, you, you affect everyone. That goes for heads of households, pastors, presidents, kings, anyone that's in a leading Position and that certainly happened to David. But what does David? Who does David say he sinned against? Here in this in this psalm, the Lord, the Lord Himself. He says they sinned against you, and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, it's the fact that he had done it against God Himself in the face of all God's mercies and kindnesses to him. It was that that made his sin sin. It was that that made his wickedness really what it, what it was. And David confesses that the wickedness of his sin was more than skin deep, doesn't he? 
doesn't he? he? He was sinful not just on the surface, not just even in his actions. He was sinful to the bone, down to the essence of his very being. In verse 5, he says something that if you're not familiar with it, might sound kind of shocking to you. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Conceived in sin. Now, you know, you have to almost wonder, does he have what he did in mind that that poor baby died that, that was conceived in that act of adultery? That, but that's not what he's talking about. He may be kind of alluding to it, but he's not saying, I was like that baby, my mom, you know, committed adultery. He's not saying that at all. His, his parents were godly, were godly people. He wasn't conceived literally in an act of, of adultery, but he says he was brought forth as a baby in iniquity and even conceived. Before he was born, David was a sinner. You know, we always talk about, you know, as pro-life people, that life begins at conception, and that is true. Guess what else begins at conception? Our sin. We don't start off with a clean slate. We are sinners from before we're even born. That's what uh, theologians often call something they call, maybe you've heard this phrase, original sin. Original sin. What is original sin? It's defined for us helpfully and briefly in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 18. It says, uh, you know, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell. There's an easy sentence to read, right? Uh, you know, it, it, when we fell in Adam's sin, we fell into two things. Sin and misery. Well, what is that state of sin and misery that we fell into? Well, here's the first part, the sin part. It says the sinfulness of that estate or condition uh, wherein two men fell consists in, here they are, first, the guilt of Adam's first sin. There's an old saying, in Adam's fall sinned we all, right? The guilt of Adam's first sin. If we never committed a sin, we'd still be guilty before God because we were in, out, outside of Christ, we're in Adam. He is our federal head. He is our, our king in sin, so to speak. Uh, so the, the, the guilt of Adam's first sin. Secondly, the want or lack of original righteousness. Adam was made originally righteous before God. He fell from that state before God in his sin. And the third thing it says the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. The corruption of our whole nature, outside of Christ, that's us. Our entire nature, everything about us, our mind, our hearts, our affections, everything has been, has been broken by sin. We are sinful down to our very beings. So guilt, loss of righteousness that Adam had before the fall, and the corruption of our whole nature, that's also called what? The T of, of tulip, the five points of Calvinism, total depravity. That's what it's talking about. When you hear that phrase, that's what it's talking about. And David is saying, way back in the Psalms, yep, you don't have to read Romans 3 to get total depravity, because Paul got his, his doctrine of total depravity from the Psalms. Look in chapter 3 of Romans and see how many times Paul quotes the Psalms. It's a, it's a minor miracle, he didn't quote this one there. He does quote this psalm in the chapter, uh, though. So sin is not some surface issue. It's not like a layer of paint on top of the wood or the metal. If it's metal, it's like a die-cast metal. The color's all the way into the metal. It's a part of it. It's down into the very inner workings of it. We aren't just sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And there's a big difference between those two things. But how are a sinner's transgressions, iniquities, and sins to be blotted out? and cleansed and washed. To quote the hymn writer that we're going to sing later in our service, you know, what can wash away my sin? 
Real sin. Like David's sins. What can wash something like that out? You know, it's said uh, that Martin Luther, before his conversion, used to go to confession and be there for hours. And his father confessor would say, Martin, I'm paraphrasing, you know, get out of here. You know, go come back when you've got something to confess. You know, and, you know, uh, there's a chapter in, in uh, The Holiness of God by Sproul called The Insanity of Luther. You know, it, 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 he doesn't mean he was insane, but he, he was so burdened by his sins. And the more he thought, the more he saw, and the more he had to confess. And he, he you know, he wore out his poor father confessor to the point where the guy was exasperated and told him, you know, you know come back when you have something real to confess. You know, but he wasn't. He wasn't wrong. But what can wash away those sins? And even great in our estimation or small, um, David doesn't ask God to sweep it under the rug because God can't. A holy, just God can't do that. He doesn't ask him to just ignore it. He asks him for cleansing. And the key to the whole psalm really is found in verse 7. Verse 7, where David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Where is he supposed to get this cleansing and washing? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be what? Whiter than snow. When David speaks of hyssop, what's he speaking of? The sprinkling of blood, which we read about in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, the Mosaic law, almost everything is purified with what? Blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So when David says, purge me with hyssop, he's talking about blood here. He's talking about atonement, about a sacrifice of atonement being, being made. Spurgeon says of verse 7, Scarcely does Holy Scripture contain a verse more full of faith than this. Considering the nature of the sin and the deep sense the psalmist had of it, it is a glorious faith to be able to see in the blood sufficient, nay all sufficient merit, to entirely purge it away. I mean, think about the sense of sin that David had in the first six verses. He's overwhelmed by it. He's flailing about, at, you know, piling up words after on top of another, and then he, he says the one thing: "Purge me with hyssop, the, the cleansing of blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, which never took away sins." He was looking forward to the Christ who was to come. What a weird but beautiful picture this is in that verse: the sprinkling of blood of hyssop washing away the stain of sin. The stain of sin that involved the shedding of blood, frankly, at the killing of Uriah. The blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone uh, is able to wash the sinner whiter than snow. Is able to wash you whiter than, than snow. Blood that makes you white as snow. Um, and it's only really forgiveness of that kind of sin that would enable David once again in verse 8, as he says, to hear joy and gladness. David was mourning for his sin. And what did he want? He wanted forgiveness, and then he could have joy and gladness. Do you know the joy of having your sins forgiven, of knowing that your sins against a holy God have been wiped clean by the blood of Christ? There really, is, there really isn't any true and lasting joy apart from that. You can have happiness. You can, you can distract yourselves from your sins. And the guilt and you're standing before a holy God by entertainment and all kinds of things. People have been doing that. In our, our age might be the king of that. There's more, more entertainment and amusement going on in our day, distraction in our day, than ever has been before. Um, but Christ offers forgiveness and joy 
through his blood, through faith in him. Well, notice the second thing. David doesn't just ask for pardoning grace, does he? Look at verses 10 through 12. He actually asks for purifying grace as well. He asks for God's work of renewal and sanctification. In purifying grace, he says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Creates the same word used in Genesis 1. Like, make, get, don't just give me a do-over. Make me over. Make me a new person. Give me a new heart, a clean heart. He doesn't, want, he doesn't just ask for a clean slate. He wants a clean heart. You know, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, as we did this morning, we, off, we always pray, what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then what does he add? Lead us not into temptation and keep us from the evil one. Why? It's, in other words, in the Lord's Prayer, we're being taught, don't just ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness and you're always going to need it in this life. He gave us a pattern prayer, including that request for a good reason. But don't just ask for forgiveness. Ask for cleansing. Ask for a, for a clean heart that we not be led into those same sins again. David wasn't content with just a clean slate. He wasn't just sorrowful for the consequences of his sins, even though God uses consequences to wake us up. Right? That's half the reason he sends them. He was sorrowful over the sins themselves. And that's the real difference. You notice that in the psalm, he doesn't even mention the consequences. Does he? David doesn't say, okay, I've had enough, you know, let's, let's change the thing that you have, have, uh, have given to me for this. All he asks for is to be pardoned and to be purified, to be changed. He wants to be delivered not just from the guilt of sin, but from its corruption as well. And that should be the cry of our hearts as well. If we really are going to cry out for mercy and forgiveness, uh, that, that's the difference between hypocrites and, and believers in some ways that we, we mourn over our sins as sins themselves and not just over the consequences that sometimes God, even in his mercy, gives us to turn us from those things. And only the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ can bring a new creation and a new renewal ongoing in the lives of his people. He's not just talking about the new birth, although you could certainly say it includes that, but he's, he's talking about the renewal. That's God's work of sanctification. If I can use another big theological word, this psalm talks about justification and sanctification. And the believer should want both. And if you're in Christ, you're going to have both. Those both things are part of your salvation. This idea is expressed well in a hymn that we didn't have time to put in the service this morning, but the old hymn by Augustus Top Lady, uh, Rock of Ages. You've probably sung this hymn who knows how many maybe hundreds of times, right? One of the verses says this, Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, which flowed, here it is, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. A lot of theology in some of these old songs. Well, David's asking for the double cure. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Top Lady wrote this, this hymn. He's asking for that double cure, forgiveness of his sins, saving from wrath, as well as, as making him pure, renewal, sanctification, changing him, making him walk more and more in newness of life. Verses 11 to 12, he says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, these verses in the middle of this comforting psalm have given some... Um, many problems and many questions. You read that and you think, oh, what's David saying here? 
What exactly is David implying about, about our salvation? Um, is David saying that you can lose your salvation? Is that, is that really what David is saying here in verses 11 to 12? Is he really teaching that God might actually take away his Holy Spirit from a genuine believer in Christ? And that very spirit by whom we're told has sealed us for the day of redemption. Does God remove his seal of redemption from someone? There are people that will tell you that that is the case. Uh, I will tell you on the basis of Psalm 51 and the rest of scripture that is not the case. David isn't saying, I finally did too much. Now God's going to yank the rug out from under me and I'm not going to be saved anymore. God saved David when he knew David was a sinner from conception already. He chose him from before the foundation of the world. That's how it works. God's not dumb. He knows all the sins you're ever going to do before he ever chooses to save you anyway. That's not what David is saying. Now, now this, you know, God does not remove his Holy Spirit from his, from his children. He does not take, take away his salvation, does not cast us, if we know him, out of his presence. But isn't that how most of our grievous sins make us feel? Is that not what you think of when you've really blown it, when you've really sinned with a high hand before God? You think, that's it. You know, I've lost everything. God's going to throw me out, take his Holy Spirit away. That's how we feel. And that's how David felt. And that's how David prayed and wrote. Have you never, have you never done that? Have you never prayed to God like that? You can. David did, didn't he? But notice David's faith. He, does David ask for God to restore his salvation? Is that what David asks in this psalm, in that verse? No. He doesn't ask for God to restore his salvation, which he hadn't lost in the first place. He asked God to restore unto him the joy of God's salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation. That's what he had lost. Sin promises happiness, but it robs us of joy. And only the Lord can restore that joy to the sinner. And the good news is, according to David here in Psalm 51, he does just that. And not just for for big, important people like David. He does that for us. As well, the last thing in the psalm is a, David's promise of praise. Now, this is not, you know, you do this for me and I'll do this for you kind of a situation. David isn't bargaining with God in the last, the last uh, verses here of the text. But he tells God, he proclaims to God what he's going to do in response for his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In other words, what did David expect God to do? When he asked for cleansing and blotting out of his sins and forgiveness, he fully expected in faith because of God's character, not his own character, that God was going to do just that. And this is what he says. Then, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, restore unto me the joy of of your salvation, God, and this is what I'm going to do. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. He's still calling God the God of his salvation, isn't he? And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You know, it's, it's a lot similar to the previous psalm about, about giving a praise of thanksgiving and a sacrifice of thanksgiving. David's like, you know, if all I had to do was just offer a bull and a goat and things, and we're all good. That's never been the point. And David knew it. David knew those sacrifices weren't the one that was to come. And so what is our position? We don't kill ourselves for salvation. We don't offer something of our own to save ourselves. 
But we give a sacrifice of a, of a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. This is, this is what restored joy looks like. If you want to look at what restored joy looks like, look at verses 13 to 19. If God would restore unto David the joy of his salvation, he would teach transgressors God's ways. Verse 12. And many sinners would turn back to God in repentance. Verse 13. Forgiven sinners make the very best evangelists. Those who know they've been forgiven much have no problem rubbing shoulders with other sinners and telling them where there's to be forgiveness to be, to be found. That's David. David. David knew how bad he was and knew for sure how bad he had transgressed, but he also knew how great God's forgiveness in Christ was. And so he, even in this psalm, he's fulfilling that very vow, isn't he? He's teaching us, sinners, God's, God's ways. Not only that, what is it? he says in verse 14, he would sing aloud of God's righteousness and declare his praises. Spurgeon said of verse 14, a great sinner pardoned make, makes a great singer. Pardoned sinners make great evangelists and great singers. David would give, verse, according to the previous psalm, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Psalm 50, verse 14. David wasn't going to offer just the outward motions of sacrifices and burnt offerings, but a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And in the last two verses in the psalm will be done here. David kind of, maybe when you read the psalm or when you were following along, you thought, boy, those last two verses seem kind of abrupt. Like, what do they have to do with anything, you know, the price of tea in China or whatever the case may be? It says, he starts and he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be all offered on your altar. So he's, remember he said that God wasn't going to delight in those things, but after God has restored him, those things were going to be offered. And I think what you have to think about, we have to be mindful of the effects of our sins, the effects they have on our family, even the body of Christ, which is the church. That's what David's thinking of here. He's the king. His sins affected the nation itself. It affected Zion and Jerusalem. And so let us be like David in the sense that we pray for God's restored blessings, not just upon ourselves, but upon others as well, upon our families, upon our church, and upon the kingdom of God, as David even does here in Psalm 51. May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to do good to his church and build up her walls even in our day as well. And may he grant repentance and forgiveness among us so that we might have our joy restored, the joy of our salvation restored and renewed unto us that sense of the joy of our salvation that you and I might more and more out of that joy teach transgressors his ways and praise him the rest of our days. Amen. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. Uh, we thank you for all of your word, but especially these mountaintop passages that uh, bring such comfort to those to all of us, whether we've sinned in, in small or big ways, whatever the case may be, that the only thing that can wash away our sins is the blood of your Son, uh, the blood of Christ our Lord. And we, we thank you that you are a God that is so full of mercy and compassion uh, and grace towards people like us, that you uh, give us psalms like this, to, that we might not lose hope when we sin, when we transgress, even in the most heinous ways, uh, we, can, we can turn back to you knowing that there is um, infinite grace and mercy and forgiveness to be found because you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place to pay the infinite price for our sins. Give us grace to be quick to confess, to seek your forgiveness and to seek 
uh, your, not just your pardoning grace, but your purifying grace as well, that you would, we ask even now, that you would work in us, create in us clean hearts, renew right spirits within us, and we do pray even more that you would, uh, in each one here, that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation and renew right spirits within us, that we might more and more be used by you to teach transgressors your ways, that we might sing your praise and proclaim your righteousness in Christ in all that we do, for we ask in his name. Amen.